I just wanted to ask Andrew a few questions. Most of you, most of you probably know um, know Andrew from around, uh, around about the place. I want to ask you uh, to reflect on your your coaching experience. 14, 15 years ago, when you started EV Church, did you have you know a formal coach, a coaching relationship? Did you seek seek that and have that in place? Fifteen years ago, yeah, we uh, uh, had a group of men who committed to meet with me monthly. So there was. Um, it was, it was fantastic. We had Philip Jensen, John Woodhouse, Bruce Hall, Michael Lockwood, um, Brian Telfer. Uh, met with me every month for, gee, I don't know, two hours. So I'd drive down to Gladesville. They'd all drive from wherever they were. And for the first well, 18 months, every month, we met. And uh, I presented what was happening, where we're at, where we're going. Um, and they, they actually function as the formally as the board and informally as support, sounding board, coaching. So that first initial stage, you didn't have a, a group of elders? You didn't have a group no, of elders? No, not for long time. They, they were the eldership? Yep, They totally. were the leadership? So, yep, totally. Great. Uh, what, what about now? What, what coaching are you doing um, now? Who am I? What am yeah, I coaching now? Yeah, yeah. who are you coaching? Uh, look, I, I, th- I think there's about five planters I coach. And I also coach senior staff, so there's about another five of those on church staff that I coach. Well, it's a little bit different. I mean, coaching's a bit different from leading, managing, coaching staff. Mm. Um, but there's about ten, I guess, that I work with. Great. Uh, can you tell us, what, what do you think are the current challenges facing church planters at the moment? What do you think are the, you know, the key issues they need to be thinking about and the key issues you're wrestling about in your coaching conversations? Yeah, look, I, I, there's a few. I, I reckon the big one is we've got to help planters not give in to fear. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's when you're planting, you've got nothing, you've got no one, and there's a huge pressure just for your livelihood to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And in that context of insecurity, anxiety, fear, you can make dumb decisions. Um, and you can compromise what we're about. You can pursue more shallow, broad work to get it going. You can, there's all kinds of things you can go wrong if you give in to insecurity and fear in those early stages, or well, any stage of ministry. So I think one of the key works for us to do is to help men have courage and trust the sovereign work of God and trust the gospel and trust the purposes of God and all of that. There's one. The, the other one I think um, we need to help men, which is almost kind of uh, at odds with that, but we need to help men think bigger. I'm, I mean, I'm not just me, but we're all very anxious that we don't start up another thousand churches around the country that will be 50 people and consume and absorb massive financial people resource and do nothing. We want to plant churches that will grow people spiritually and numerically and make a big difference. Um, and I think one of the keys there is helping people who plant don't see themselves as the local parish church that's going to start a group of 100 people. But think bigger. We've got to help guys think bigger. So open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 1. I'm reading from the, uh, the ESV. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be, uh, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, my intention is just to uh, reflect on 2 Peter chapter 1 together, and I've got some comments by someone that I want to quote in a second, so uh, that's why I need my computer. Um, But I thought as we started it, it's worth reflecting on the seriousness of the things we're involved in. And I find 2 Peter 1 very helpful in that because we, we need to be reminded of the seriousness. We live in a culture where uh, we are discouraged from being serious about the gospel or at least there are things in our community that actually, I think, undermine the root that leads to serious Christian living. And I take it the root that leads to serious Christian living is the exclusive claims of the truthfulness of Jesus. And I think 2 Peter gives that to you in spades. Let me just run through it very quickly. I want to get actually down to verse 16, but let me give you the introduction. So verse 1, I'm going to race through it. Uh, Simon Peter, so it's a letter from uh, Peter, uh, the one, of course, who was uh, first to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, but then put his foot in his mouth and did it the rest of his days until uh, Pentecost and the Spirit was poured out. But he speaks to those who have obtained a faith, a precious faith, NIV, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Interesting reflection that there is a very strong testament to Jesus as divine, but also interesting that this faith has come by the righteousness of God, which I take it is a reflection on the faithfulness of God to his covenant purposes, his righteousness, uh, and it's by virtue of that character of God, this faith has come to us. And there's your reformed uh, presentation of the gift of faith given to us by God. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our, of Jesus our Lord. Uh, knowledge I'll come back to in a second. It's used a number of times for this little section here. Um, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So again, he's the one who's granted it to us. He's the one who's called us. It's God's work who's given us this faith by his righteousness, who's granted us all things, who's called us, who's given us everything, everything that pertains to life and godliness. God is the one who's done the work. By which, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. Is there an expression there of union with Christ, the sense that by faith, through the knowledge of God, granted to us by the sovereign work of God, we are now not divine, but united with the divine God by the Spirit of Jesus, so that we are united with him and he with us. I take it that's the case. Uh, And so by that, we have now escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. We've been rescued. And you get this sense that those first four verses, because the first five will take us on to some reasons, but the first four verses is this kind of exposition by Peter of this wonderful and extraordinary gift that we've been given. The amazing privilege that God has granted, God has given, God has worked sovereignly to call us to, that makes it possible to us to be in relationship with him and be those that have escaped. That is an extraordinary gift. So verse 5, for this reason, for the reason that we have all this wonderful, precious, amazing gift by God's hand, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and I think he then outlined seven things there, virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, Godliness, brother affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge again. So for this reason, because we have this extraordinary privilege and gift, make every effort to add and grow so that you're not ineffective and unproductive. Understanding and knowing what we've been given, let's keep in step with, let's work out our salvation, let's add and grow with all that God has given us. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You were rescued to be people who were changed, keep in step with pursuing change. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent, verse 10, to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities you will never fall. That's the kind of bike riding illustration of Christian life, isn't it? You heard that one where um, the, uh, you're only able to stay up on the bike while you're moving forward. And the Christian life's like that. It's only while you're growing that you stay. Um, you can't stop. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore... I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear. I will make every effort so that after my departure you'll be able to recall these things. Peter's very clear he's going to go soon. His days are ending. 
And it's so important that people get it, he's going to keep reminding them and reminding them and reminding them so that they'll remember after he's gone. So important it is to get these things. Now, there's a man who's serious. Yeah? There's a man who's passionately committed and focused and serious about the cause he's in. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitness of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son who I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's talking about there making known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now coming, it's the word parousia in the Greek, yeah? Um, so it's most likely the coming he's talking about is the second coming because Perusia is so often used of second coming. It's there in chapter 3. Um, and I take it it's the coming he's talking about too because the eyewitness of the majesty he reflects on is the transfiguration on the mountain uh, in verse 17. Um, we ourselves heard, the, or verse 8, and we had the voice from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. So it's almost certain that he's reflecting on the Jesus revealed in glory as he one day will be when he returns. And we've had this made more sure by the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. The word of the Old Testament prophetic word fulfilled in Christ. But what's interesting for mine is the word verse 16, the beginning of verse 16, the word for. And this is what I really want to reflect on for you. Why does it start with the word for? How does verse 16 relate to all that's gone before? How does the for bind it together? And I take it what Peter's saying is we have been given a precious gift. Make sure you're serious about adding to that gift all that God intends for you so that you'll be certain and sure of your faith and life with him. And I'm going to give everything I can to remind you and urge you to think on these things. For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses. What's Peter saying? I think he's saying, this stuff is so serious because I was there. I saw it. It's true. <laughs> Jesus is no myth. He will return one day in all his glory. And if you are not ready for that, you are blind and will be destroyed. If you don't spend every moment being ready for that, you are a great fool because these things aren't myths. We didn't make it up. It's true. And the reason we went around the Mediterranean proclaiming these things wasn't because we found the lifestyle helpful. <laughs> It's because we saw Jesus raised again from the grave. We touched him. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. You can do what you like to us. Take our lives if you like. We don't care because it's true. <laughs> and there's a man who's deadly serious about what he was involved in. And he gave everything to it. And he's urging his readers to do the same. Um, that is, he is confident and certain about the cause of Christ, the gospel, the exclusive claims of Jesus, which makes him passionate, urgent and serious in his life together. Now, the reason I'm actually reflecting on that with us is because I actually think we get impacted by all kinds of movements and 
cultural waves that can easily dull the edge of our seriousness. And I saw it again at Christmas time, which is where I want to read something for you. Um, Hugh Mackay, you know Hugh Mackay. Um, I thought he was a Christian. Maybe you know better than I do, I don't know. But he wrote an article just before Christmas time. And how naive am I? But he, and I often read his stuff. Uh, he says, um, let me find it for you. He wrote an article really concerned about so many people going to church at Christmas time that they might end up falling into the trap of becoming religious fundamentalists. And he didn't want that to happen. And he, he talked about the, you know, the religious fundamentalists, the ones who fly planes in the World Trade Center, the kind that oppress women and destroy freedom. And he describes these people as arrogant, superior. He talks about their views as steel traps that imprison the soul. Now, it's kind of helpful. I'm reading through going, yeah, man, they're terrible, those people. Which of us wants to be that kind of arrogant, superior, narrow-minded, imprisoning, ugly, destructive person? I don't. Well, how do you ensure you don't end up there? Keep reading Hugh McKay's article. And you work out, according to Hugh McKay, that the problem is you've got to make sure you understand faith correctly. If you misunderstand it, you'll end up there. But if you understand the way I understand it correctly, you won't. He says, faith is a work of the imagination. It's a creative act. It can never be rooted in certainty. It's about seeking, not knowing. Certainty, he says denies the very essence of faith. This is the great paradox of faith. We yearn to know but cannot know, so we construct a set of beliefs or accept a ready-made set from an established institution to satisfy our need to make sense of what's going on. And the mark of the true religious believer is humility. I believe this precisely because I can't know it. There's Hugh Mackay's definition of faith. So if you understand true faith that we don't know, then you won't end up where the religious fundamentalists end up, corrupted by an assumption of superiority, he says. Where the person ends up saying, I know best, my beliefs are correct, if your beliefs differ from mine, then you're wrong. Arrogance relies on certainty. Now here's the thing, you hear that kind of stuff and you kind of go, yeah, religious certainty sounds arrogant. I think we have a sympathy with it. We are, of all cultures, prone to feel the weight of this stuff. But then you go back to 2 Peter 1 and you ask the question, does he fit into Humakai's definition of faith? And what you have is a man who isn't humble in his lack of understanding, but a man who's deadly serious because he's absolutely certain. His faith is based on the fact that he was there, he saw it, he's convinced it's true and he's prepared to die for it because it cannot be otherwise. That's Peter's conviction about faith. And of course for the faith of the Bible is different than Hugh, <laughs> which really ought not to be a surprise. What was that? Hugh is ironically just a servant. Oh, Richard, thank you. Man, man. There was... There was the drama of my punchline. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That you've got, yeah, the irony, of course, is that Hugh Mackay's position about faith is as certain, yeah, 
and uh, breeds the same kind of arrogance, um, of course. Um, That's good teaching because the, the listener were anticipating me to <laughs> Setting it up so well for them. <laughs> no, that's all good. Um, and so I actually think we need to help each other, help people keep remembering that concept that um, certainty doesn't necessarily mean arrogance because otherwise Peter's arrogant, Jesus is arrogant uh, and ar- certainty doesn't breed religious violence because Jesus is the one in his great certainty who seeks to stop the violence. All those kind of categories of thought in our world just don't connect. Um, but I, I do want to then just undergird here for us to finish that I think it's, it's when you lose the certainty of the Christian faith that you lose the seriousness of it. And when we rediscover and help each other to remind ourselves that Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. It's not a searching, never finding. It's a deep, profound conviction of the truth based on eyewitness accounts by men who gave their lives for that claim (laughs) that breeds in us, therefore, a determined seriousness to bend everything for the cause of the gospel. Because what can you lose today when you've got eternity stored up with Jesus? And I think we need to be hearing that from pulpits all across the land, week in, week out. Um, This isn't a lifestyle choice. It's not that you can be a nipper parent or a Christian parent (laughs) it's the gospel is the heart of life and everything around it so give up nippers to pursue Christ there you go